The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're listening to The Hard Shoulder here on News Talk. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock. I hold in my hands all the things left unsaid: confessions of love and regret. The new book from the author Michael Harding, who's with me in studio. Michael, you're very welcome. It's a huge to privilege show. to be here with you, Kieran. Ah, well, well, it is a huge privilege to you're have the man. you here. You're um, the man. Tell me, explain to people at home what is the concept of the book? Well, it's a phrase we always use, all the things that are left unsaid. And sometimes we come out of rooms and we feel bad because those things we should have said. You know, you might be with somebody at a a hospital bed and you might come away thinking, you know, I, I never said such and such to him. And sometimes it can happen in life that you'll, you'll leave things unsaid until the very end or until maybe somebody has passed away and you'll regret it. And I put that, all the things left unsaid, but I put the, the subtitle on it personally that it was confessions of regret because people say, you know, uh, oh, I regret nothing. And it's a fierce, strong position that people have. Mm. And I thought, you know, I think it's better to regret things, to be able to say, you know, I'm kind of sorry that I did that or, you know, I, I missed out on whatever. And this came upon me, like this book came really quick. It, it, of all the other books I ever wrote, this was so easy. It was almost like it was written for me. And what happened was, very briefly, I was just in Beaumont. I had two bad operations that were hugely successful, but it, they could have really finished me off. And when I went out of the hospital, I felt the need to be alone. I went to the west coast of Donegal. I got myself a little house to stay in. And I spent the time, I was like a sick cat. I had a cat one time, was knocked down by a car. And I knew it because it, the tail went dead on the cat. It was like totally dead tail instead of sticking up. Mm. And he went into a little under the stairs cubby hole and he stayed in there for two or three days. And he was healing himself. And I felt when my operation was over in Beaumont, I needed to go away and just be with myself because I never came closer to the idea of being fragile or invalided or dead. And they were the kind of possibilities that might have arisen if the operation I had hadn't been successful. And out of that solitude, I felt flooded with emotion for people that had died. And I felt, you know something, there's somebody that I didn't visit enough when he was in the nursing home. And there's somebody else that I never really told her that I really loved her just before she died. And there's another person who had cancer and I knew it from last year and I never really went to visit him until the last few days and I took mm-hmm. up the phone. You know, the, the, the things I missed out on being caring to somebody else and they flooded through me simply because I felt so alive after having had it brushed with death myself. And so the book really wrote itself, to be honest. It's, it, the book is a collection of letters to people that I loved or cared for and have passed away. And I felt, you know, I want to say something to them. And it was like when I was on my own in the house in Donegal, they just walked in. It was like, Mm. it was as if there were ghosts just walked into the house because I had planned, I had planned to write a book of letters. And that was agreed with my editor in Hachette. I was going to write letters. And I sat down to write the letters and I couldn't think of anybody to write to. And then people like Tom Hickey, Mary McPartlin, it was as if they walked into the room and sat down on the other side of the fire and said, why don't you write to me? 
Why don't you say to me what you should have said why, before it was all over? Why do you think we don't do that? Maybe we do, and maybe it's only me. I don't think it is, though. Ah, uh, I don't know why. I think it's we're fe- we're fearful to be fragile. It feels dodgy to say you love somebody, and it's also dodgy. Do you know the way? Like if you t- we, we kind of barter our own value against somebody else's, and even in relationships, sometimes we don't want to give away too much of ourselves in case it makes us like, you know, fragile before the other person. Mm. So we keep holding back a little bit. You know, we, we feel it kind of, if I say, listen, thank you for the help that you gave me, am, am I giving away too much of myself? I don't know why, but we feel protective. And the reality is that when you come to, I'm 69 years of age. Now, I was, I, I had great service in Beaumont. It was a miracle that they put me back on my feet walking. Mm. And I'm so happy to be alive. And please God, I'll have decades more ahead of me. But something will eventually get me. Yeah. That's the reality. That, yeah. And that hits you when you're, when you're my age now, that begins to hit you. And you begin to think, it is so precious and important to be alive and to be able to speak to people and leave nothing unsaid. And there's just one thing. There's one thing that's amazing, because somebody asked me this earlier over the weekend, I was chatting to people in the family, and they said, is there anything negative in the book, in the things that were unsaid? And I hadn't thought of this yeah. all through the book. But I said to them, no, there isn't. Because what you regret in life are the thing, the loving things you never said. You actually regret the hateful things that you did say. You know, like yeah. like you really regret if you say something to somebody, not, not even hateful, but kind of, you know, negative, bitter, yeah. you know, a bit reductive to the other person. Mm. And you say something like that to them. Oh, it's like... Rumi, the great Persian poet, says it's like arrows coming through the bow. Mm. Once you release them, you can never take them back. You've changed the world by saying things negatively. And so we always regret negative things we said. But we never are the same with positive. We regret that we didn't say it. Do do you think men are worse at... Accepting that fragility. Yeah. Like, two women can have an intimate relationship yeah. more so than two men. Yeah. I do. And I think that... Well, sorry. A, not that they <laughs> can. They can both have it. Women more readily have intimate relationships yeah. with other women yeah. than men have with other men. Yeah. We, just, we kind of have an intimate relationship with your, with your partner. And yeah. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the problem with men is that the absolute I is stronger. And that's a phrase that there's a fellow called Robert Thurman, and he's a great Buddhist philosopher, professor in America. And he talks about how in Buddhism, there's, the absolute I is to think that you are substantially real and you are the absolute important one. And the males have that in any species because it's almost part of the DNA. It's almost part of you know, to, for me to survive, I, I, I need to push into the room like I am the one mm. and you're not the one. And if you try and make yourself the one, I'll give you a slap. It's it's that kind of energy that you get in to, masculinity. To be the apex predator in the, exactly. in, in, in the environment. Exactly. You, that's so, yeah. yeah. Whereas the, the, the woman, uh, no matter that she be, let's say, a career woman and she has, and we're, we're we, you know, we've moved off from the narrow concept of women just as mothers, but they still bear in their whole psyche and body and mind 
a facility to put somebody else before themselves. Coming or stemming from, if you like, childbirth and having an infant to mind and protect, it's just so strong in women that they can actually be vulnerable and share with each other and share with other people and share their emotions, whereas sometimes the men will feel nervous and on edge and feel, well, I'm the one, so I'm not going to let myself down by saying I'm emotional, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it, but we're getting better too, I yeah. think. I mean, the younger generation, right? Like, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm the old... I'm the hairy old kind of patriarch here. Like, yes. And I think my generation, uh, tricky enough, but I think that the younger generation of males, I hope, are more open, more gentle, more more able to share their feelings. Do you think so? You tell me. I mean, it, it's suggestive that, uh, I mean, kind of a matriarchal church might have been yeah. a, a more caring one than the patriarchal church well absolutely and maybe there was a matriarchal church somewhere back there when Mary Magdalene was writing her gospel and when that gospel had a tradition of people collecting around it as being the insights into the sort of Sufi wisdom of Jesus maybe Mm. that all was there and maybe it was the kind of Greek patriarchal organisational clever functional masculinity that took over absolutely Mm. it does it all the time you know and I've, I've no doubt like you could have, who knows, you could have some kind of church in the future that would be much more matriarchal. Or you could have, what I think will happen in the future is that people will rediscover the sense of faith and understand religion as various languages that are saying the same thing. So that even me personally, I can say I'm a Christian now in a way that I, I was afraid to say it 20 years ago in the way I say it now. But I would also say I'm a Buddhist or I'm, I'm a Muslim. So how do you mean it now compared to how you might have said it 20 years ago? Because 20 years ago I was writing plays about the collapse of the church and I was was really focused on the fact that they got it all wrong and they made such a mess of it. Mm. And then life went on and my life moved on and I, I, you know, experienced Buddhist practice and, you know, I was was outside the church for decades and just living an ordinary life. But I realised then that the obsession of, of being annoyed with them for getting it all wrong at an institutional level is over because the institution as we knew it is over. And and now you're going to move in, I hope, to a time of rebuilding and reimagining at a, at a new level that's more relevant to the culture that we live in rather than the 19th century kind of Victorian stiff mm. culture that, that, that we had a residue of for so many decades until it nearly broke our hearts. That draws from what? A, a more kind of common language of yeah, forgiveness. I think, that, I think there's, an in, there's an instinctive sense of faith in people. Yeah. More so than maybe there was in the 60s or 70s. And, and I, I mean that like kind of, like across the world or in Europe particularly, that the sense of secularism, you know, that you find the beautiful existential writing, let's say, of, of Beckett or Camus or these mm. boys, that... There's a great sense of the emptiness of the 20th century. And then there's a great sense of awareness about the collapse of institutions. And, you know, there are still patriarchal religious institutions that you would pray to God will collapse even still. You know, there's a lot Mm. of way to go. But at the same time, you can sense a, a more fluid, easier sense of being present in the world with people. And people do mindfulness and meditation and they might 
dip into Buddhism and they might dip into Christianity for their spirituality. And they won't find a conflict with going from one to the other. So I think that's what I'm saying is like a kind of an openness and not seeing the institutions as, well, that they own your faith. They, and, people couldn't that differentiate, they tell you. probably, could they? They couldn't differentiate they couldn't, between no. the institution of the church, which they were, I don't use the word brainwashed, but they, they, they were brought up to follow uh, and their faith. Yeah. Whereas then, now you strip away the institution and either the, the faith, uh, some would have said the faith then evaporates once that is broken down, but yeah. you say, no, no, actually there's a residual and faith I tell you, there. I tell you, it, there is, and I'll tell you why, because you used a word and I hadn't used it a few seconds ago, a minute ago, forgiveness. Mm. Like, there, there is a word. I mean, it's an amazing word. And it's, it, it's like, it, it doesn't fit into modern, capitalist, aggressive commercial society. But it's still there in every human being as a sort of sense of liberation, right? So when I have a hurt with somebody, and you hurt me, and I'm annoyed with you, and it goes on for like days, weeks, or months, or years... The day that I forgive you, I will release myself from the burden of mm. feeling negative about you. You know, there's a great, there's a great Buddhist line. You know that is po- hatred is the only poison you drink yourself and think it'll harm your enemy, right? <laughs> so, so like that is that shows you that the word forgiveness, the the sense that we relate to each other as human beings with extraordinarily, extraordinary compassion, that's that transcends religion. Mm. But yet that is the heart of religion. Michael, listen, I love the book. Thank you very much. Uh, I hope people at home love it too. It's yeah. called All the Things Left Unsaid, Confessions of Love and Regret. An absolute pleasure. Thanks a million for coming it's in. It's a real pleasure to be here and thank you. Yeah. yeah, Michael Harding is the author of that book. Uh, stay with us here on The Hard Shoulder. We'll have all your business news after this very quick break. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from 4 on News Talk.